0: The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We've got two objectives this morning, and they're very much related to one another. We're going to finish uh, two short sections in the life of Christ and then move to observe the Lord's table. And the, the nice thing about it is our sections in the life of Christ are concluding the the Passover meal that Jesus observed with his disciples, and that we started last week, and then his institution of the Lord's table. So it works out well that way. Just to give us some background and context for both of these things that we're going to do, uh, I want to review once again what happens over the course of Passion Week. And I just sat down myself this weekend and and kind of thought through and tried to write it out as a summary. Just to help fix it in my own mind and hopefully make it more clear as we look at it again this morning. So you'll remember on the Saturday before Passion Week starts, Jesus makes his way from Galilee down to Bethany to the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his close friends. Just weeks earlier, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and and that was still a big buzz around the city. Remember, some of the people at Passover were coming to Lazarus' house because they had heard that Jesus had raised him from the dead. Jesus would have, well a lot of the people that were traveling down with Jesus were Passover pilgrims. They were coming down from Galilee to observe the Passover in Jerusalem. Over the next several days, it's gonna be Jesus' pattern to come from Bethany, which was about two miles from Jerusalem, into the temple complex, uh, do different things there, particularly through Wednesday, and then go back outside the city at night and spend the night with his friends. On Sunday, he makes the first of those appearances coming into the city, and it was a big one. Uh, so big that we now call it the triumphal entry. Jesus took great pains to show that he was the Messiah and that he was fulfilling prophecy, particularly the prophecy of Zechariah 9, where he rode into the city on the colt of a donkey. That was a sign, both of his humility, but at the same time that he was the Messiah, that he was fulfilling Zechariah 9, and as he does that, he's hailed by the people. I mean, this great multitude of people are hailing him as the son of David, as the Messiah. Matthew says uh, in his gospel, most of the multitude spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees. That's where we get this uh, name of Palm Sunday, is that we're cutting palm branches and laying them in the road spreading them in the road, and the multitudes going before him, and those who followed after, after were crying out, saying, Hosanna, or praise to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And, of course, to call out and recognize him as the Son of David was to recognize him as the promised Messiah. At the same time, the reaction of the Pharisees and of Jesus himself were very different from the multitudes. The Pharisees, of course, were telling Jesus to to shut these people up, uh, to tell them not to say those things. And, of course, Jesus refused to do that. But Jesus' own reaction was not one of uh, glorying in this reception or even rejoicing. He wept. He wept over the city because he knew that judgment was coming for these people. He says in Luke 19, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. And of course, that those things would actually have been to receive him as the promised Messiah. Even though it looks like they are doing that at the triumphal entry. By the end of this same week, they're going to be calling for his crucifixion. Largely at the, at the behest of the leaders. For the day shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's anticipating the coming judgment in 70 A.D., and will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We've talked about the fact that the the generation that actually saw Jesus and saw his ministry in person were particularly accountable because of the privilege and the opportunity they had to hear and see Messiah, and yet they are the ones that called for his crucifixion. Well, on this Sunday, Jesus proceeds on into the temple. He continues to heal the blind and the lame that were brought to him. He's doing the kind of ministry that he had done over the past three years right up to the very end. And then he returns back to Bethany. On Monday, he comes back into the city. On the way in, he uses a fig tree that has no fruit on it to provide an object lesson, again, for the judgment of Jerusalem. He curses that fig tree and it, it withers very quickly and for the second time he comes into the city and cleanses the temple you remember that he did that right at the beginning of his three-year ministry certainly three years was enough time for those practices of buying and selling in the temple the money changers they would have been out in force during the passover period he cleanses the temple once again and then returns to bethany now it's tuesday He comes back into the city in the morning and begins what will be a very long and difficult day for him. By now, Israel's religious leaders are conspiring together in a way that they had never done before. I mean, there were considerable factions between the groups of religious leaders because they believed different things, Pharisees and Sadducees, chief priests and the scribes. But now they were united on the fact that Jesus needed to be put to death. And that was a decision they had already made. But they're trying on Tuesday to catch him in something, and they're questioning him, trying to find something that they can bring him up on charges, charges serious enough to bring him before the Roman government and have him killed. So they're questioning him on things like, by what authority does he do these things, particularly the things like he was doing in cleansing the temple. They question him on whether or not it was right for the Jews to pay taxes to the Romans. Now you can imagine, they, they pose these questions so that no matter which way he answered, he's going to be in trouble with somebody, and yet he still figures out a, a very uh, crafty answer to avoid uh, their catching him. They, they questioned him about bodily resurrection. The Sadducees were the ones that did not believe in that and posed a situation that they thought that anybody did, that did believe it couldn't have an answer for. And yet he answered them on that as well. And then finally, one of the Pharisees asked him what the greatest commandment of the law was. And, and that one doesn't seem like a bad question. Uh, Jesus answered it well, and he, the guy that asked it recognized that it was a good answer. So it seems like even amongst these Pharisees, there were some that were maybe leaning towards believing Jesus. And we do learn that later, some did, some did indeed believe in him as the Messiah. But on this Tuesday, Jesus not only deftly handles all these questions, he begins to push back on these religious leaders. He's very bold. He knows what's coming, and yet he still uh, pronounces eight woes against them for their hypocrisy, and he uh, concludes that discourse with yet another lament over the city of Jerusalem. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 23. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Again, he's talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. For I say to you from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Of course, he's talking about the fact that he's going to ascend back to heaven in the not-too-distant future, and they won't see Messiah, they won't see him until his return. (laughs) Still on Tuesday, uh, he and his disciples, after that difficult morning where the religious leaders make their way once again across the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus answers their questions about when will these things be, and again, in the context, these things are the coming destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., And what will be the sign of his coming and of the end of the age? And he teaches them about that in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. We went through that. It really is like a mini sketch of what we see in greater detail in the book of Revelation. He also teaches them through a series of parables to exhort them uh, to be faithful during this interim time between his two comings. In fact, the five parables that he teaches them, really emphasize two things watchfulness for his second coming and faithfulness to serve him between these two companies and they conclude the, the Olivet Discourse does with a judging of all surviving humanity at the return of Christ that's something that the Old Testament anticipates as well now we get to Wednesday and it's a relatively silent day as far as the activity of Jesus and the twelve but we believe, and it's some commentators, Bible students disagree about this, that this is the day that Judas makes arrangements for his but the betrayal of the Lord. Judas evidently was motivated by greed, but perhaps also by the fact that he, he might have even believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't acting and things weren't progressing the way that he hoped they would uh, as far as you know, Jesus about to die. And when Messiah came, I think the expectation of both Judas and the crowds was that he would free them from Roman subjugation. And that wasn't happening. And now it looks like it was, you know, it definitely wasn't going to happen and and they were going to put Christ to death instead. Judas had also been recently rebuked. Remember that Mary had anointed him. And Judas, along with the rest of the disciples, were very indignant about this expensive perfume that was used for that task, and it could have been sold and and been a benefit to the poor. We later learned that uh, Judas wasn't concerned about the poor. He just wanted more money put into the money box so he'd have access to it. But whatever uh, Judas' ultimate motive was, he uh, went to the authorities, and for 30 pieces of silver, he basically told them that he would make arrangements to lead them to Jesus at the right time. Remember, this is Passover. Uh, They weren't going to be able to do this very openly out amongst all the people because the people knew Jesus. They knew uh, the kinds of things that he had done. So they're going to have to be done at night. And Judas, as one of the twelve, would be able to have that kind of access and that kind of knowledge. Now, Judas betrayed Christ despite the fact that he'd been chosen by Christ himself as one of the original twelve. He'd walked with Jesus during the entirety of his ministry. He'd heard his teaching. He'd seen his power. He'd even done miracles. Remember, all the 12 were sent out by Christ and did the same kind of works that he did. He was even entrusted, as we said earlier, to take care of the money box. So I don't think anybody suspected Judas right up to the very end. And yet, despite all these privileges, Judas' greed for sure and the fact that Satan entered into his heart to accomplished this uh, all that overcame the privileges that judas had enjoyed as one of the twelve that brings us to thursday which is the first day of unleavened bread and also the day that evening would be the day that they celebrate the passover together remember that jesus sends peter and john out to secure a place inside the city for them to observe that passover and jesus predicted uh, the way that they would find that place remember the story he says follow this man that you see carrying a pitcher of water he'll lead you to a house with a large room that's already furnished and that's where we'll celebrate it together and of course uh, as Peter and John went to find that man that everything turned out exactly as Jesus had predicted. At twilight on Thursday and in accordance with the Mosaic law Jesus and the twelve began celebrating Passover together. During supper Jesus got up and washed the disciples' feet. He did that, again, as an object lesson to them, that greatness in God's eyes uh, is indicated and demonstrated by service to others. He then tells the twelve that one of them will betray him, something he knew back when he picked them. Uh, But they now were hearing this for the first time. And interestingly enough, they are all looking at themselves initially. Is it me? And even Judas said that, and and Jesus said, "You said it yourself," which doesn't exactly make it clear to the other twelve, the other eleven, that he's the one. But Judas knew he was the one, and Christ did too. And he tells him "What you do, do quickly." And Judas goes out into the night to find the religious leaders. I think Judas well knew where Jesus was going to end up that night. He'd probably, they spent the night on the Mount of Olives before. Uh, He's going to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where Judas is going to lead the religious authorities to to arrest him. Despite the very recent lesson that they had had on humility by Jesus washing their feet, uh, they have another squabble on which one of them is the greatest. And once again, Jesus very patiently uh, repeats the lesson that greatness in God's eyes is demonstrated both through humility and through service. This sets the stage and brings us to our new material for today which is the first prediction of Peter's denial and then the conclusion of the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper. So there were evidently two predictions as we look at the varying gospel accounts. The first one happens here while they're still in the upper room. The second one, uh, and that was described by Luke and John, the second one takes place and is described by Matthew and Mark. Uh, after they had finished in the upper room and made their way over to the Mount of Olives, so let's pick up there, and we just these are very short sections that we look at before we observe the Lord's table together. Uh, if you have your harmony, you can look at uh, page 211. Otherwise, you can open your Bibles to John chapter 13. That's the the section we're going to read for the prediction of Peter's denial, the first one. John chapter 13 beginning in verse 31 when therefore he had gone out that was Judas Jesus said now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him if God is glorified in him God will also glorify him in himself that is glorify Christ in himself and will glorify him immediately of course he's going to be glorified after he's raised from the dead Little children, and he's, he's speaking to the 11 at this point. Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, I now say to you also, where I am going, you cannot come. Of course, he's talking about the fact that he's going back to the Father, back to heaven. And the 11 are not going to be able to follow him there. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And here's where Peter, as was his uh, bent, speaks very boldly. Simon Peter said to him, "Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, "Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow later. Peter said to him, "Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you." Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Now, we don't have any reaction recorded by Peter at this point, but he must have been stunned. I mean, he, uh, you know, even as they come to arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulls out a knife and he's ready to go to battle. But he does end up denying Christ three times and to slave girls. I mean, it's bad enough that he denies them, but he, he denies them to somebody they shouldn't have been intimidated by. And he he ends up denying Christ with curses. So we'll get to that uh, later in a couple of weeks here. But uh, Jesus knows that that's going to happen. And you might think, well, Jesus is divine. He knows this is God's plan. He knows this is uh, just part of it. I think he was truly hurt. I mean, this is one of the 12. And he's a man that he was even part of the inner circle of Christ. He poured his life into him. And now this man... Uh, under the questioning of slave girls, is going to deny that he even knows who he is. So now we come to the conclusion of the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper. Now, there's connections between those two things, but they are two different memorials. And we want to move now to Matthew chapter 26 and uh, pick up the account there. It's... This section is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and as as well by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, but we're going to read Matthew's account in chapter 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So you can see he's taking the same elements from the Passover meal and instituting a new kind of memorial for his followers (laughs) after his resurrection. There were four cups associated with the, um, <clears throat> the Passover. And I would encourage you to go online perhaps and just look up the four cups of the Passover and you can get some more detail about what each one of those represent. Um, but they're all tied to promises that the Lord made to Israel back in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. This is, of course, after the Israelites had multiplied in the land of Egypt, had become a threat to the Egyptians, but before Moses went to Pharaoh and called for their release and began calling down the the plagues upon the Egyptians. And this is the Lord speaking to Moses in Exodus 6, verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. He's talking about the plagues there. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. And as David even mentioned this morning, as we've talked about already, the Passover celebrated that redemption by God, the redemption of the Israelites from, from Egyptian bondage. The third cup of the four cups that were passed during the supper related to the promise of Israel's redemption, as we read in those verses, and that was connected to Jesus' imminent sacrifice. The blood of the Passover was the blood of the lamb uh, that was shed and the blood put on the lentils and the doorpost so that the death angel would pass over that particular family. And Jesus is going to make the contrast between that blood and his own blood. It's going to be his blood as the spotless lamb of God that's going to be shed as the blood of the new covenant. The fourth cup and the one that we read that Jesus won't partake of until he partakes of it new in the kingdom is related to the promise of restoration for the nation of Israel. And those. Those promises occur throughout the latter prophets, but they start even as early as Deuteronomy 30. And I want us to read that together. Uh, If you think about the context there in Deuteronomy 28, God is laying out the promise of blessings if they're faithful to the requirements of the Mosaic covenant. And then yet the promise of cursing with the ultimate curse being taken out of the land if they're unfaithful. And you just keep reading through the Old Testament. You see what happens. They're unfaithful, they're disciplined, they're ultimately taken out of the land by exile. But even as early as Deuteronomy 30, and I would argue even earlier in Leviticus 26, God knows that that's going to happen, and he promises restoration. He does it in Deuteronomy 30, he does it in virtually all the latter prophets. But let's read Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 6. So it shall be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcast are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Now there have been returns of the Israelites that are scattered all over the world back to the land of promise, several occasions during uh, in, in recent history, and even occasions within the scripture time itself, but they've never returned and lived in the land the way that the Old Testament prophets describe that they will, that is, as the chief of the nations, as not worrying about any of the other nations that surround them, as being free from warfare, as being prosperous, both uh, by their own uh, human descendants and by their cattle and, and other livestock. So we're still looking for that, for where we are now in church history. We're still looking for, and of course we, don't, we know it won't happen until Christ himself comes back. When he comes back and when they ultimately recognize that he is their Messiah, then they'll be uh, restored and they'll be given a heart circumcised so that their bent will be to obey the covenant, rather than, as in their history, they've continuously disobeyed it. Now, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is the, the well-known passage related to the new covenant in the Old Testament, and here's what it says. <clears throat> Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I've made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. That, of course, is the Mosaic covenant. It, that covenant was renewed to a new generation of Israelites after the ones um, perished in the wilderness. And that was, that's what hap- is happening in the book of Deuteronomy. But this is a new covenant that God makes with Israel. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. That's very analogous language to their heart being circumcised. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That was God's intention from the very beginning, but they failed miserably on their side, the Israelites did, throughout their history and even today. They shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Of course, that's possible because Christ is going to shed his own blood rather than the blood of bulls or goats, and and that's going to be the blood of this covenant. Okay, so now we want to transition, having read the historical gospel accounts about the institution of the Lord's Table, we want to transition now to actually observing that ourselves. Just as the Passover was designed to be an annual reminder to Egypt of the great work that God did in freeing them from Egyptian bondage, and it was the culmination of all the plagues, the supernatural plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians, So Jesus now designed another memorial for his followers to be observed after his resurrection from the dead and until he returns. This memorial recognizes our being freed from the bondage and penalty of sin. And at the same time, it's a regular reminder of the coming of Christ, the second time. Each time we observe the Lord's Supper together, we look both backward and forward. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11:26. 26. If, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. That's the backward-looking aspect, the, the fact that we look back and are reminded of the price that's been paid for our sins through Christ's substitutionary death. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's the forward-looking aspect where we anticipate the return of Christ. And Quite frankly, when Christ comes back, I'm not sure we'll observe the Lord's table anymore. We will observe the Feast of Israel because that will be, once again, the, the milieu of the Millennial Kingdom. <clears throat> In our church, this table is open to you if you've repented of your sins, you've received Christ as Lord and Savior, and you've made that profession public through baptism. It is a time both of reflection and self-examination, reflection and thanksgiving again as you look backward to see and remember what Christ has done for us on our behalf. And at the same time, self-examination. We don't wanna just see that as something that Christ has accomplished and God has done and not live accordingly. So the Lord's table is a time to examine ourselves. And Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 11:27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. It's a very serious thing to say. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So it's really a time for us to examine our own relationship with the Lord, uh, to confess any sin that we might be holding on to, to seek restoration in any relationship that needs to be reconciled, or anything else that we need to get right with the Lord. And I would encourage you that, particularly as we pass the elements around, that you just pray. Pray yourself and just take a hard look at your own walk with the Lord and deal with whatever you need to deal with between Him and yourself. First, we take the bread. And the bread, of course, is a symbol of the body of the Lord. Even the fact that there's one loaf has symbolism to it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10:17, Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So this is something that we do uh, together as a body, and, and just as Paul says in other places in 1 Corinthians, uh, even though we're many members, we're one body. And that's the symbolism of the one loaf before i break the bread and ask david to come and distribute it for us let's have a word of prayer together father we do thank you both for the record that we have of the mighty deeds you did in freeing your people israel from egyptian bondage uh, tremendous displays of your power and yet that too requiring a sacrifice as protection from death We also thank you for the memorial that this is, the Lord's table. The fact that Christ himself, as your only begotten son, is the perfect Lamb of God, gave his own body and blood for us, that we might be reconciled to you, that we might have our sins atoned for, that we might be forgiven and enjoy eternal life. We thank you that Christ was faithful. We think about the things that he went through Over the last week of his life leading up to his death, uh, he struggled, as any of us would. uh, But ultimately, he was committed that your will be done. And Lord, we just thank you that he was willing to endure such a difficult death, such a publicly humiliation, in order that he could secure the price of our redemption. And we just, uh, as we do on a monthly basis, we recognize and are thankful for uh, that great price that was paid. We realize that we've been bought with a price and that we're to glorify you in all that we do. So I pray now as we take this together that you would just sink that truth deep into our hearts in such a way that it would have an impact on on the way that we live throughout the week. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Since we've already looked at a couple of the gospel accounts uh, our study in the life of Christ will go now to 1 Corinthians. This is by the Apostle Paul some 25 years after the Lord's table was instituted. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Like the bread, the cup was part of the traditional Passover meal. We've already mentioned in our study this morning that the third cup of the Passover related to Yahweh's redemption of Israel with great judgments against the Egyptians. But for us, as believers today, believers between the two comings of Christ, this cup is a symbol of Jesus' shed blood for us. It paid the price of our sins, it satisfies God's holiness and righteous judgment against sin and enable us to be reconciled to God, to be forgiven by him, and to enjoy eternal life with him. Now, the author of Hebrews tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As we've said already, that at the first Passover, it was a lamb, either a sheep or a goat, that was slain, and its blood was put on the doorpost and the lentil, so that the death angel would pass over that household, not kill the firstborn. So the blood of that lamb secured a certain kind of redemption, a redemption from death. Later, under the Old Covenant, under the Mosaic Covenant, it was the blood of bulls and goats that served as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin, either on the Day of Atonement or as individual worshipers brought their sin offerings. But Hebrews 10.4 tells us that it was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, that is, to deal with them completely. Now We need to be careful about this. The animal sacrifices under the Old Covenant and for the Old Testament believers, when offered in faith and obedience, did provide a temporal forgiveness and a temporal cleansing of the flesh. But it was temporal and incomplete and would remain so, until Christ made the ultimate sacrifice this cup then symbolizes a superior blood the blood of Christ himself is a spotless lamb of God his is the blood of the new covenant which has been enacted on better promises which provides forgiveness for both Jews and Gentiles and indeed pays the price for the sins of the whole world I want us to read Hebrews 9 because it provides a really good contrast between the blood of bulls and goats and what that accomplished and the blood of Christ. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Of course, the tabernacle he's talking about is the one he entered into when he went back up into heaven. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, and they do. I mean, that was the way that the Old Testament law described it. You, when you sinned or when you did certain things, you entered into a period of uncleanness, And the animal sacrifices were brought to cleanse, to forgive the sin and to cleanse the flesh. If those kinds of, if that kind of blood sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So it is a superior cleansing It is um, the sacrifice that paid the price of all the sins we'll ever commit, past, present, or future. And it's the one that we trust in for our salvation. So once again, before we take the cup, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, it's it's a clear truth from throughout the scriptures that the wages of sin is death. And that without the shedding of blood, there is no sacrifice for sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. And we thank you that in your love and in your mercy, you allow for a substitute. Sin has to be atoned for, but you allow for a substitute. In our case, your own son to come to take on human flesh and to pay the price of our sins. We thank you for this memorial that we observe on a monthly basis just to remind us of that great truth and the one upon which our salvation rests. And I pray now as we take the cup together, again, we'll be reminded of the tremendously high price that Christ paid. Not only the physical death, but even separation from you for that short period of time until redemption was accomplished. Keep us mindful of that so that uh, as we face temptation, as we face a situation where we are tempted even to be unfaithful in any way, that we be reminded that we belong to you and that we're now to glorify you in all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue to read in the account of 1 Corinthians 11, verse 25. We'll pass a basket around in just a minute so that we can collect the cups. But in keeping with our a cappella theme today, let's stand together and sing the doxology as a closing benediction.